Hello and welcome to the Alive Church in Newark podcast. We're so glad you're joining us today. We hope that you find what you're looking for today and that you are challenged and inspired to pursue the life that God has for you. Enjoy the message. Good stuff. Well, I hope that you're, uh, that you're having a, a, a good time in the house of the Lord this morning. Uh, I know I am. Good? Yes. Some of us are. Excellent news. As long as some of us are. Uh, that's, uh, that's ideal. <clears throat> You know, um, we keep talking about this idea that we are on a journey together as a church, don't we? And, uh, and it's because I, I, I believe, uh, firmly believe, in fact, that, that that is the case, that we are on a, on a journey uh, with, with God. I believe that God is speaking to this church. I believe God is speaking to this church through different people and in different ways. But actually, God is saying the same thing. And he's saying this, I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready. Uh, because this church is, uh, is entering a season, is about to enter a season of significant harvest, a time of significant uh, transformation where we will see transformation of lives in our town, where we will see uh, light invade darkness, where we will see life invade uh, death. And we are, we are a part of this. This church's body of people is a part of this. And so God says... I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready. This is like the calm before the storm. This morning, as I, uh, this morning, this week, as I was as I was praying actually about this message, I asked God uh, to uh, uh, to speak to me as as I often do, and I had this picture of a of a kettle, right? You know, one of the stovetop kettles, right? And there's a stovetop kettle, and it's on a stove, and it's bubbling away, and uh, and there's excitement, there's activity, there's stuff happening. It's there. It's, it's about to go. And any minute now, the kettle is going to start to whistle. There's going to be steam uh, that comes out of the chute. And that is uh, a picture of where this church is going and where it is currently. And so I hope that you're ready. I hope you're ready. Because there is a part for every single person to play. Every single person uh, has a role in the body of Christ. Every single person, uh, Paul speaks uh, about, about the, the church being like a body, where every person is a part of it. Every person has a part to play. And so we all have something to do, something to contribute, something to give. And so I'd encourage you to, speak, to ask God, to hear from him, to see, to find out what it is that he wants you to do. For some, it could be uh, leadership. It could be pioneering ministry. It could be supporting ministry. It could be a kingdom financer. I don't know what it is that God has for you, but I know he has something. Because he has something for every single person in the body of Christ. The older, older people in this, in this room, God has so much more for you to do. So much more. The younger people in this room, God's going to show you some amazing things. Perhaps for the first time, you're going to see some awesome things. And I'm so excited to be a part of what God is doing in this church and in this town. It's actually nothing to do with the message. Nothing to do with the preach this morning. But there you go. 
so we're on uh, we're on a journey. Keep talking about this this idea of a journey. Uh, this this uh, this this picture really of of a journey, and that's because we we start somewhere and, and we get to somewhere, and so the bit between those two things is a journey, right? And we see uh, we see in the Bible uh, Jesus' entire ministry, in fact, is a is a brilliant picture of a journey, right? A three year journey, in fact, where he uh, where he teaches his disciples, where uh, where more of him is revealed to them uh, over a three year period, and it's a journey, and you can see it in the disciple in the lives of the disciples how they begin to respond, how they begin uh, to change. Uh, you can see the progress of the journey. You can also see when they take several steps back. In the journey, and then several steps forwards again, and it's it's a great it's a great journey to uh, to observe, and it's a great picture for us, for our discipleship life, for for where we are. And so, I'm not afraid of uh, of continuing to use this this word journey. And, uh, and part of that journey for where we are now, we're we're, uh, we're looking at this passage of scripture from Matthew five, all around the beatitudes of Jesus from uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, and these Beatitudes, these eight statements where Jesus declares, blessed are those who, and then there's a criteria, and then a reward. And uh, and if we read this this verse, uh, this passage rather, uh, Matthew 5, 3 to 14, I think it is, uh, we can see this this, this picture almost of, of of a mountain. right? And we've described it as a picture of a mountain where we we go up a mountain to meet with God. Right? And we're expecting to meet with God, to hear from God at the top of a mountain, as we see in, uh, in the Bible many times. And then we see this picture of coming down the mountain. And so the first four Beatitudes that we read, are uh, they address us and they address our response to God. Right? They, they address how, how we, uh, the condition of our hearts and how we respond to God. And then the last four Beatitudes that Jesus speaks uh, address our response then to creation and to the world around us, and to the community. And we begin to see, uh, after we've met with God, and we've, seen, we've had a revelation from God, uh, we, what we then bring down and out to the rest of the world. And so there's this idea of going up a mountain and down a mountain, having heard from God. Is that okay? Good. Good news. And so today, uh, we are on the, uh, we're looking at the fourth uh, beatitude of, of Jesus, and it's found in Matthew 5, uh, uh, chapter uh, 6. And it says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for, those, uh, for they will be satisfied. Now, we've already looked um, in depth at what the word blessed means that's common in all of these uh, Beatitudes. It's about happiness. It's about flourishing. It's about an inner contentment uh, that, uh, that Jesus speaks about. So we're not going to spend too much time on that today. And for this Beatitude, when I was reading it, I thought that, it's, that it actually makes more sense to me if we actually start from the end of the Beatitude and work backwards. Right? So we actually look at the reward, right? as uh, Sam has used that language in, in past weeks, this idea of a reward. And so the reward, if you like, for this beatitude is that we will be satisfied. Jesus says we will be satisfied. But in order for us to be satisfied, there needs to be a dissatisfaction, doesn't there? Well, I thought so. If not, then well... That's what I'm preaching. <laughs> uh, 
there's, there's an implication by Jesus that there is a dissatisfaction. And we can, we can see this. It's, it's, it's not actually very difficult to see. All we need to do is look at the news, look out the window, look at the world around us, and we can see dissatisfaction everywhere. And, uh, and we can see the, also the response to dissatisfaction. And often that's not healthy. Uh, but we can see this dissatisfaction in the world everywhere. And uh, I believe that I've pinpointed the, the, the moment in time when dissatisfaction uh, was brought into the world. Because it wasn't God's intention that we would be dissatisfied. Right? When we read in Genesis in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were there, and, uh, and they had everything they needed, everything was great, everything was good, and, uh, and they, they didn't need anything else. Um, and yet the world we see today is nothing like that. And so there was a moment where dissatisfaction was introduced. Well, when was it? Well, I believe I've pinpointed it for us this morning. It's in Genesis uh, chapter 3, and, uh, and it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from, uh, from any tree in the garden? Bit of context. He had said that. Uh, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat uh, the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So is this the, is this the, the time, is this the, the, the first instance that we see of dissatisfaction? in creation ever? No. No, I don't think that it is. Because what happens in this uh, little conversation between the serpent, who we uh, later discover is, uh, is, the, is the devil, is Satan, and Eve, what happens in this conversation is a lie. And uh, the, the, the serpent convinces Eve that she is dissatisfied. But she's not. She has everything she needs in the garden. Nothing has changed since the time that God said everything is good. But the serpent implies a state of dissatisfaction. And we see this everywhere, all the time today, because this, uh, this is very familiar to us, isn't it? Yeah? That when, when, when we're told that we're dissatisfied, and uh, we can be told often, you know, um, uh, you know, um, your phone, your phone is old, and it, you know, you, there's a latest one. You need a new phone. You, you're not satisfied with that. You need a new one. That's not true. Old phone works fine. Makes phone calls, doesn't it? Where's the issue? There's no dissatisfaction here, but there is a sown sense, a false sense of dissatisfaction. Yeah, we see it even, even, even in some, some perhaps more, uh, more damaging ways. Right? You're not satisfied with your spouse. Why don't you try this website? Yeah? There's a false sense of dissatisfaction. There's nothing wrong with your spouse. Your spouse is a gift from God. You have everything you need in that. You don't need to go anywhere else. But there's a false sense of dissatisfaction. And where does a false sense of dissatisfaction lead? Where does it lead Eve to? She takes a bite from the apple. She sinned against God. And in that time, in that moment, a gap is created between humanity and God. 
and true dissatisfaction is born. False dissatisfaction leads, can lead to sin if we're not careful. But sin leads to true dissatisfaction. And so that's what we see in the Bible when, uh, when Eve uh, eats from the apple and then later on so does, um, so does Adam as well. And, uh, and we see this chasm created, this gap uh, between humanity and God uh, that, that man has been trying to fill ever since. Yeah? Trying to, to, to feed this hunger, to quench this thirst, this dissatisfaction that was born then. Uh, still, uh, we still see the effects of it. We still experience the effects of it now. And this is, this is the world in which we live. And I think it's so ironic that hunger, and the hunger that Jesus speaks of when he, when he, when he, uh, when he uh, asks us to direct our hunger and thirst towards uh, righteousness, this hunger that was born, was born out of eating. Of an apple. So that was that was pretty interesting. So uh, so there's this sense then of of dissatisfaction uh, that uh, that we see in the world, and I don't think any of us would really disagree with the fact that that's there. Uh, so uh, so we're just going to take that as as a given. And uh, and as I say, humanity has been trying uh, for uh, since that time to fill dissatisfaction and failing. Jeremiah uh, 2.13 says this. Have you got that slide, Angel? Because I can't read it on here because my printing's gone. There we go. Uh, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. We've moved away from God, yeah? Forsaking God and trying to go our own way using our own water it's just not going to happen. But Jesus said, good news is, Jesus says that we can be satisfied, that there is a way to satisfy this hunger, this, uh, this thirst. Jesus says that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied. Well, I think it's important for us to know what righteousness is before we're able to hunger and thirst after it, right? Otherwise, kind of Bit of a lost cause, really. Don't really know where we're going. Uh, so, uh, so it's going to be good for us to understand what righteousness is. And righteousness uh, has, a, has some, you sometimes hear it in a secular context, don't you? You know, you might hear someone described as righteous if they uh, give to charity a lot or if they're selfless or, or whatever else. But the Bible, uh, the, I want to show us what the Bible uh, means and what the Bible talks about when, uh, when we talk about righteousness. And I want to do that. Uh, by looking at the life of Noah very quickly, not in, not in depth at all, uh, just, just one little verse uh, from Genesis where we're introduced. Many of us will know that Noah is the guy with the boat. Yeah? Yeah, his family went into the boat. All the animals were there. Uh, sort of saved humanity, that guy. Uh, so we're introduced to Noah in, uh, in um, chapter 6 of Genesis, and it says this, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. So Noah's a righteous man, and we're trying to figure out what righteousness is, right? So perhaps we should take some note here. Uh, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. That's really interesting. Noah was blameless amongst the people. Now, does blameless mean sinless? No. Nobody is sinless except from, uh, apart from Jesus. We know that. We know that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That's true of all of us, of everybody. But Noah was blameless among the people. 
So uh, to the people, no fault could be found in him. Right? He was humble. He had integrity. He, he, was, uh, he was an upstanding citizen. He, uh, nobody could say anything bad of Noah and its stick because it was obvious to all that he was blameless. He wasn't blameless to, for God, but he was blameless amongst the people. And his blamelessness was, is informed by the fact that he walks with God. He chooses to walk with God that informs his blamelessness, and he is declared righteous. And, uh, and in, uh, in, Romans, uh, in Romans 4 and uh, chapter 5, we can see the mechanism by which those who are sinners are declared righteous. Uh, righteous. And uh, Romans 4, chapter 5, uh, it says, However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies their un- uh, uh, the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So it is God who declares who is righteous, yeah? By faith, by the, by the faith that Noah had in God, by the fact that he walked with God, God declares Noah as righteous. Is that okay? Everyone, everyone sort of on board with that. We see, this, uh, we see this a few more times throughout the Bible as well. We see it in the life of uh, Job. Uh, we see it in the life of uh, Abraham as well. And, uh, and, in, uh, and Daniel as well. There many people in the Old Testament declared uh, righteous. And, uh, and I just want to read again from Romans 4, um, where, where Paul is talking about Abraham, who is declared righteous. It says this, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, right? So if it is true that, uh, that Abraham was a good person and that he could be seen to be good, then he might be able to boast among the people. But he couldn't boast before God. Same as Noah. Blameless among the people, that's great, but not blameless before God. Couldn't boast before God. What does Scripture say? Paul says, and then he quotes the Old Testament. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So again, we see this idea that God declares who is righteous by the fact that Abraham believes God. And in this context that Paul is talking about, he's talking about the time where Moses and his wife, uh, want, um, Moses, Abraham and his wife wanted to have a child, and uh, they were like, "Well, my wife's really old; it's not going to happen. There's biology going on here." And uh, and God said, "You can have a child. Not only that, but there's going to be a nation." And uh, and Abraham's like, "Okay, great. If you say so, I believe, I trust you." And it is by this action of trusting God that Abraham is declared righteous. So we've seen what, uh, what, then the, what the Old Testament says about righteousness and how, uh, and how we can be, uh, how people are declared righteous. But I want to look now at the New Testament, what Jesus says about righteousness uh, in, in the New Testament. Now the word in Greek for righteousness or, or righteous is, uh, is this Greek word, dikiesune. Uh, Very impressive. I've got this little piece of software that tells you the words, and it's got this little speaker button, and you click it, and it speaks it out to you. So I'm just doing that all weekend. Dikiesune. Okay, cool. Got it, got it. So I think I nailed it. Smashed it. Dikiesune uh, is this root word, and, uh, and, and we'll sort of, um, we can see this word in, uh, in many different ways. It's sometimes translated as righteous, and it's sometimes translated as justified, but it's the same word that, uh, that the Bible uses here. 
Now, I just want to bring our attention to, uh, to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20 before we look at what Jesus declares is uh, righteousness and how, uh, how we can attain uh, sort of righteousness. Because in Matthew 5, 20, uh, Jesus says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is quite big, particularly for at the time. I mean, it's easy for us now because, you know, we've been, we've been sort of uh, almost conditioned in, in uh, modern Christian thinking to, be, to hear the word Pharisees and be like, oh, they were the, they were the bad guys almost. They were the, they were the. Um, so we kind, of, we kind of know that kind of now. That's our uh, interpretation. That's our understanding of who the Pharisees are when the Bible talks about the Pharisees. But that's not the understanding at the time. At the time, the Pharisees were seen to be uh, the upstanding members of society. Right? They, were, they, they were the religious uh, leaders. Uh, they, were, they, they, they did all the right things. They ticked all the right boxes. They were the people that led the people and the people that the people looked up to. And so uh, the, the people uh, li- listening to Jesus at the time wouldn't have this, this understanding that we have now. They would be comparing themselves perhaps to the Pharisees and saying, well, there's no way I can do that. And so when Jesus is saying, uh, you must do that and more, there must be more because even what the Pharisees uh, are doing, that's not enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. I wonder what the people at the time were thinking. But this, once again, is Jesus, uh, um, Jesus uh, reminding us or echoing the same principles uh, that we understand from the Old Testament, that is, that it's not by works that we can be declared righteous. Nothing we can do can declare us as righteous. Only God can declare us as righteous. And so Jesus is calling out uh, righteousness uh, by works. It's not a thing. Can't be done. Can't be done. We can only be declared righteous by God. Jesus actually shows us a really clear picture of righteousness. And I think this is, this is the most helpful, uh, helpful um, scripture when, when looking at righteousness. It's certainly the most helpful thing that I've, uh, scripture that I've uh, read as I was preparing this message to really understand what, what it is, the direction that we should be heading in when we're thinking about righteousness. Because Jesus tells us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. So how exactly is that possible? But in Luke uh, chapter 18, it says this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now these people are polar opposites in society. So far apart, as I've said, the, the, uh, the, tax, uh, the Pharisees were perhaps held in higher esteem uh, and looked up to and were seen as basically you know, fulfilling the law, being almost like the perfect people. Tax collectors, on the other hand, well, they're criminals. They're criminals. It's not like HMRC is today. They, uh, they take the taxes from the people, but they also take more. They take more. They take extra. 
They steal from the people and they keep it for themselves. And everyone knows this. And so everyone knows that the tax collectors are criminals. And Jesus is, is telling us this story of, of this tax collector and this Pharisee. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. It's good. It's good. Good stuff. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified. That's our word, Dikie Sune, went home righteous. Before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. In this passage, we see Jesus declare who is righteous. God declares who is righteous. Jesus declares who is righteous. And we see the righteousness is, is declared in this time to the tax collector. The role of the Christian is not to judge. It's not to compare. It's not to look down on others. Because that's... Do you know how easy that is? So easy. Because there's always someone worse. And by our own measuring stick that we might have, there's all, you'll always find someone worse. It's not difficult at all. But God doesn't measure us by our own measuring stick that we might have. God uses his own measuring stick. And by his measuring stick, all have sinned and all fall short. Romans 3.20 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when we read this, when we, when we acknowledge this, two things can happen. One of two things can happen. Either we ignore it and we continue to go down our own route, measuring ourselves and people by our own measuring stick and declaring, well, we're pretty righteous, not doing badly. Or the Holy Spirit can convict our hearts. And we can acknowledge and understand actually who we are without Jesus. Because without Jesus, our identity is this. We are sinners. And our response to that is, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Now that's not where we stay. It's not who we are in Christ. But we must understand and acknowledge who we are outside of Christ. Two Corinthians five twenty one. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is our identity now, in Christ. We are the righteousness of God. We are the righteousness of God. <laughs> wow. Wow. Just one final scripture that I want to encourage us with in Philippians three. Uh, verse 8 
What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. It's only by the Holy Spirit that uh, our hearts can be convicted to pursue righteousness. It's only by the Son that we may be clothed in righteousness, and it's only by the Father that we may be called righteous. And it's only by righteousness that we may be satisfied. And Jesus says that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied. And so our challenge for us today is this. What are you hunger, hungering and thirsting after? What are you trying to fill the chasm that was created by sin with? We have a choice. Just like Noah had the choice uh, to walk faithfully with God. Just like Abraham had the choice to believe God. So also we have a choice to pursue, to hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's our choice. And I choose to hunger and thirst after righteousness. I wonder if that's true for you this morning. But it begins like this. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Sometimes I think in church that we're a bit scared of that. Sometimes I think in church uh, we, can, we can say, well, we're not sinners anymore. We're, we're made new in Christ. We're a new creation. That's true. That's very true. It is. And I'm not saying that, that's where we that's where our thought process ends up, but where it must start is, is understanding who we are outside of Christ. Because that informs our need for Jesus. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And God God's response is now. You're a co heir. I've made you righteous. I was really challenged by God this week as I was preparing this message. I, I wondered, God, do you really want me to say to the church to, to speak over them that they are sinners? It's a real challenge. It's not popular, to be honest. <laughs> He's like, yeah. Yeah. They need to know what I've done for them. They need to know what it is that I've done because they were, now they're not. This is what I've done. I was like, wow. Wow. As our response to the message today, I'd like us to take communion together, informed by, uh, by what we've spoken about this morning, informed by, uh, by this pursuit, by this hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And so there should be a uh, communion, um, a, a, a little plastic thing that's got all the, the, the wafer and the juice in there. And if you don't have one on your seats, uh, Stephen's got a basket at the back that's got some, so you can go and, and get that. But I want us to, uh, to think and to consider as, as we take communion, just what it is that God has done for us, that we may be called righteous.
that it's not by anything that we can do. Because in our own strength, in our own ability, we are sinners. We are made righteous. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 as we take communion together. Thank you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The body of Christ broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we come before you this morning as your church. And we say to you, Lord, have mercy on us sinners. We acknowledge who, who we are before, before you saved us, before you made us righteous, before you made us a new creation. And we thank you, God, Thank you, Father, that you sent your Son. That he would die on the cross at the hands of his own creation, that he'll be uh, ridiculed, that he'll be tortured, and ultimately he would be crucified. That he would undergo this, this pain, this suffering, so that we might enjoy a relationship with you, so that our faith may declare us righteous so that you may declare us righteous by our faith. We thank you, Lord, for everything that you've done for us. We worship your name, Lord. We lift you high in our lives. Above every situation, above every circumstance, we declare that you are higher, that you are greater, that you are more. Thanks so much for joining with us. We hope you enjoyed the message today. If you did enjoy, you can subscribe to hear more from Alive Church Newark. You can share this message with your friends or you can share on your social media pages. We hope and pray you have a great week and meet with God. God bless you.